Hi, I'm Duncan Regeer. I played uh, Ronan in The Next Generation and Shakar in Deep Space Nine. And you are listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. The seventh season of Star Trek The Next Generation was an interesting one, as they sort of cut loose in their final year and made a lot of very interesting stories. After all, we're talking about the same season that brought us Masaka and Corgano, David Cronenberg Barclay, cellular peptide cake with mint frosting, and of course, the infamous sex candle ghost who gives Dr. Beverly Crusher what she sure wasn't getting from Captain Picard. And today, we're talking with that ectoplasmic ladies' man who taught the good doctor that Bustin makes her feel good. Duncan Regeer played Ronin on the seventh season TNG episode Sub Rosa, and that episode has now become part of some of the biggest memes in Star Trek history. You may also remember him as Shakar from three appearances on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, including the self-titled season three episode Shakar, the season four episode Crossfire, and finally in the season five episode The Begotten. In addition to his time on Trek, Duncan is also remembered for roles in the new Zorro television series as Zorro, Dracula in the Monster Squad film, Prince Blackpool in Wizards and Warriors, and many other appearances in TV shows and films. But what you may not know about Mr. Aguirre is that he's also an accomplished painter and esteemed writer of poetry and prose, as well as a pugilist, swordsman, and a figure skater. Duncan is one of the most diversely talented guests we've had here on Trek Untold, and his passion for creativity shines in every facet of the arts that he's involved in. And I hope that with today's episode, you get a little bit of a taste of who Duncan Regeer truly is, because he's a lot more than just the sex candle ghost. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance, and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on, and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, while you're at it, feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest. Subscribing, leaving ratings, leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show. And if you're already following us or supporting us on Patreon or bought some merch, a big, big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can. Thank you for the help. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and I'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, 
access interview file. Hello, welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the opposite side of the screen, we have a man who is a master performer on the screen, as well as a master of the visual and literary arts. He's scoffing right now, but it's very much true. Uh, it's today a privilege to be speaking with Mr. Duncan Regeer. Duncan, how are you today? Pretty good. And thank you for having me, Matthew. Good to see you. It's really exciting to chat with you because I've seen you in so many things. And it's one of those cases where, you know, I speak to a lot of actors in the show and I'll recognize their faces, and, but I won't necessarily know their names. So it, I'm glad that I finally figured out who the heck you are. And uh, yeah, this is going to be exciting today. I'm pretty me sure. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kick things off here with the first question I like to ask all of my guests. And that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Wow. Um, well, it would have been the William Shatner version. Yeah, that would be it back then. That would be my earliest memory of Star Trek. Did you be... watch it as a kid growing up? I think on and off, you know, not not a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I, I, you know, I remember things like Triffids and yeah. Are you, uh, yeah, uh, Tribbles. Triffids were a different movie. That's a different franchise altogether. Oh, it's a different <laughs> franchise. Well, what, what were those little things, those fluffy things? That those were... fluffy things are Tribbles. Triffids are from, uh, I think, a 1960s horror movie, actually. <laughs> and maybe you're right. Of course you're right. Yeah, it shows you how much I know about science fiction. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up, who your parents were, and what little Duncan wanted to be when he grew up and became an adult? Well, my parents were um, very different from each other, actually. My father came from Russia. Uh, as an immigrant, a Mennonite, uh, with a group of other Mennonites. And, um, I mean, they had no money. They were very poor people, but, uh, you know, they were willing to work. So they sort of brought themselves along. Um, and eventually, uh, I mean, he joined the Canadian Army and uh, worked in intelligence there because he could speak several languages. Um, and, uh, you know, went forward with his career and life to become a bacteriologist. And, you know, my mother was uh, English and she came came over during the Second World War and uh, worked as a physiotherapist in the Canadian Army and met my father and they got married and had a bunch of kids, me being one of them. Um, and we lived in a fairly rural area. And uh, my dad was also a, a kind of an amateur painter. He never, he never had really the opportunity to become a professional in any respect because he was too busy earning a living for his family in other ways. Uh, but he was always very encouraging to, you know, say, you know, if you want to paint something, here's a bunch of brushes and some paint and go over there and stay out of my way and uh, make something. So that was that was one way of, of learning about art. And um, my mother was was very, very intelligent woman. She she had a vast knowledge of literature and medicine and. Uh, I think she's probably responsible for instilling my interest in poetry and theater and literature um, because I was fascinated by it from a very early age. And I knew very early on that I was going to grow up to be an artist, a painter. And I think by the age of 12, I, I was pretty, pretty much resolved to be an actor as well and started, you know, became a professional when I was 16 and, and, uh, started working in theater. So that's sort of the beginning of things. But I believe you were also doing some more uh, physical things too, right? Like I know at some point you got into fencing. Uh, I'd read, maybe this is incorrect, but I read that you were involved in figure skating briefly. That's true. That's true. Also. Okay. And, and uh, I'd also heard that you were an Olympic boxing contender. So you were doing a lot of things. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the boxing, uh, the boxing came a bit later, obviously, you know, I, I, figure skating, I was never drawn to. 
I was pretty good at it, but I, you know, it wasn't something that I really stuck inside. It wasn't in my heart to do it. And I think, you know, later going into boxing, somehow boxing seemed to be the antithesis of figure skating to me for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, or maybe I was trying to, I had these sort of Hemingway type issues with myself, having to prove myself in some way. So I got involved with, with that and did okay with it. So did you go to school to pursue acting or, or different type of arts? Uh, what was your outlook at that point? Uh, I, I did dabble a little bit with the Bastion Theater School in Victoria, British Columbia, but not really very much, just maybe a few months, um, because I was working as a professional already at the age of 16 and, uh, you know, involved with Shakespeare. And it just went from there. I just sort of, even before I finished high school, I was already working. So so how does a 16-year-old find Shakespeare and, and learn to understand and appreciate it? Well, as I say, my mother was influential in that area. She always made sure the literature was lying around, and I found it fascinating. You know, started writing my own works back then. And, um, yeah, I, I just loved the, loved the language. So for a lot of performers we've spoken to on the show, they really enjoy the rush of being on stage. Some just perform the art of acting. Others prefer to just talk about the the literary beauty in the words. Uh, for you, what was it that actually drew you to pursue acting, especially at this young age? What what energy was forcing you towards that direction? I loved creating roles. I, I liked interpreting material and uh, understanding the, the themes within a script and um, <clears throat> making it come to life. I think I was less attracted to the thrill of the crowd and all of that, although it is something that is quite magical when you connect with an audience and sort of become one being in a strange way. You know, it's a, it is a collaborative. And I always used to say to fellow performers when, you know, they'd say, well, well, the crowd out there is dead, you know, they're just, you know, it's not working tonight. We just can't get this thing off the ground. And I said, well, you know, they're 50% of the equation. The audience is is involved in this. So if it's an off night, you know, maybe it's cold and rainy outside or whatever, or the, you know, whatever the energies are that are going on has have some influence over how people will react to what you're doing on stage. So don't take the whole shoulder of the blame if it's not working that well. You know, it's just what it is sometimes. As far as performing goes, were there any lessons that you picked up during these early formative years on stage that you've continued to use with you throughout your years? I think it is that connection with the audience. I mean, even with, you know, people say connect to the camera for film um, and the camera will find you. Obviously, that's how you, you kind of deal with it. But um, I think it's it's really important to remember that there is an audience out there at some at some level of yourself. Um, we do an awful lot of stuff today where you just kind of. It's a form of behavior rather than acting to me at least for film and, and TV. Um, and of course, it's dependent upon the script. If it's a lousy script, then, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> but if it's a good script, you can really get into it intensely and find the role and be the role and and make the magic. So, Duncan, do you remember what your very first professional TV gig was? And do you remember what it was like to go from that change from a stage to a set? My first experience was actually a film with the National Film Board of Canada in Montreal. And it was called The War is Over. And I played a, a shell-shocked sergeant uh, coming home on a ship from uh, the trenches, basically. 
and uh, he uh, it's how his story unfolds. Um, it was the early understanding of you know this kind of post-traumatic syndrome in soldiers, and um, you know I had some experience of that with my my grandfather who uh, fought in both First World War and Second World War, and indeed in the trenches, and uh, he wasn't too too forthcoming with his experiences, but I could see, you know, certainly by the time I was a teenager that he, he experienced, you know, extraordinary things in those two world wars, nightmares, the whole, you know, and as an elderly gentleman, he would, he would never talk about it, but he experienced some extraordinary things. I'm sure Um, he would have the nightmares screaming and, you know, reliving everything. But we we treat it all differently today. You know, we 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 have a way of dealing with soldiers that have, have dealt with that kind of thing. And and um, back then, it was just uh, suck it up and get on with it. You know. So during this time, yeah, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's my first film experience. <laughs> so during this time period, also, were there any actors that you emulated or that you admired that you wanted to try and be like, and that? maybe got you more interested in acting. I liked several films. I think, um, you know, Man for All Seasons was interesting to me. Um, uh, Beckett with, um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, it's gone for my Peter O'Toole and uh, uh, Richard Burton. Um, and those were interesting films. Uh, that were influential, but I was in the theater. So I was more drawn to that type of classical work at that time. And being then later in the industry in Hollywood as well, not too long after that point, uh, did you ever get to ever meet any of your heroes? I guess I did, you know, I, I, you know, also from the the, the world of horror, I, I was really uh, intrigued to one of my first jobs in uh, uh, Hollywood was um, to work with Christopher Lee who was the famous Dracula. And uh, that was, that was wonderful. I really enjoyed that. So one of the uh, biggest roles that you had early on that I want to talk about is my wicked, wicked ways where you played Errol Flynn, which was real, very transformative role. I got to watch it. It's actually on YouTube, the whole thing. Uh, I got to watch it. It just, it was amazing to watch you transform from Duncan Regeer into Errol Flynn. Uh, Just see not just the physicality, but your entire persona. So uh, I'm curious, you know, how you achieved that transformation from Duncan into one of the most famous leading men in all of Hollywood. Good question. Um, <laughs> I was doing, I think, the last days of Pompeii at the time when they they offered that part to me, and I had very little time to prepare for it. Two weeks, um, I came back from London and uh, started work on on research right away. And it was really one film of of Flynn's that was of you know paramount interest to me, and that was Gentleman Jim. That's where the characters suddenly clicked for me, and I suddenly got an essence of Flynn, Flynnishness, out of that. Yeah, I think that was the key. And that film also featured a lot of folks who would go on to appear in Star Trek, like uh, Denise Crosby, Alan Durock, or sorry, uh, Dick Durock, Alan Oppenheimer, who we also know as the voice of Skeletor. Uh, do you remember ever working with any of those folks, or any other folks who went on to be in Star Trek? I know you're not a big Trek fan necessarily, but did you recall any of those people? Well, from then, but not not now, right? Yeah, I haven't seen them for years. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember working on set with them at all? Not particularly. You know, I I mean, it, we are talking about something that's, you know, about 30 years ago. It's so, only 30 uh, years. Yeah, what the heck? Come on, Duncan. <laughs> Where's your memory? 
Sure. I mean, I remember faces and try to put names together and, and that sort of thing. I, yeah. Um, you know, if you, if they remembered something, I might say, oh, yeah, I do remember that. I, you know, that kind of thing. So Errol Flynn, again, he's also known for being the sword fighter in so many of his films uh, and few, again, coming from this fencing background. I'd like to learn a little bit more actually about that. Um, so when you were learning fencing, was this more so for an actual athletic pursuit or was it for stage and screen? It was for stage. I was actually trained by a gentleman named Patrick Crane, who was the famous stage choreographer for, for sword fighting. And uh, I worked with him at Stratford and and uh, he taught me sort of the beginnings of of fencing, stage fencing in particular, which isn't real fencing. It's got to be dramatic, theatrical, all the rest of it, you know, big sweeping moves and then little moves and what have you. Um, and he was he was sort of the instigator for that. And so I, I knew how to fence before I got to do the film film. And then later, of course, came Zorro when, you know, I think I spent 90 percent of my time with a sword in my hand. And then I would say that my fencing or sword fighting in general improved a great deal for me with Peter Diamond who uh, did Princess Bride, among other things. And, and uh, he was probably the greatest film swordsman ever. And uh, I learned a great deal from him. I was, you know, to the point where I was able to develop my own technique for, for sword fighting, a combination of saber and foil. So that you'd get the big sweeping moves in a fight. You could do, you know, all the jumping around off balconies and, you know, chandeliers and all that stuff. But you could also do intimate work very, very, very fast. You don't have to worry about that today because it's all enhanced, you know, computer enhanced stuff and sped up. And, you know, it's all it's all very different. Back in uh, those days, we had to do it ourselves. And thank you for making that perfect segue into Zorro, because, of course, I have to ask about that. Uh, You were Zorro from 1990 to 1993. And we mentioned Peter Diamond. He was a stunt coordinator on the show. And uh, I actually had watched an interview with Henry Darrow, who co-starred with you in Zorro. Yeah. And he was saying how uh, when he did all his fight scenes, the swords were not tipped, which means they, you know, they had the sharp points sticking out. Um, and it was meant to be very much, very physical, very aggressive kind of style. Working on a show like Zorro, which is such a very physical show, and you're spending so much time with that sword in your hand, fending off. All, this is my fencing hand, by the way, folks. This is me fencing. Uh, you're spending so much time doing this very physical role. Uh, you know, what's it like just to go from something more classical to something such so action packed and and physically challenging? I mean, it was really, you know, with that particular role, I was really playing two roles, the Don Diego role, the side of things, and then the masked, you know, sort of hero type. And um, so there were contrasts in in there as well. Um, But it was, you know, it was a combination of everything that I sort of knew how to do, which is probably why one of the reasons why I got the part was because I could ride horses, I owned horses, and I raised horses. And and so I could do all of that type of work that was required and, and I knew how to fence. So that was okay. You know, I had all those, those things at my disposal. Um, and the physicality of the part was, was a wonderful investigation for me. I sort of traditionally, we think of Zorro as the Fox, which is what Zorro means in English is the Fox. But um, I sort of treated the character more like a Panther. His moves were cat-like rather than, they weren't fox-like, they were cat-like. And um, that worked for me, that imagery. And, uh, you know, and also in, encompassed it into the sword fighting. There was always kind of a sense of, 
I wanted a sense of humor with it. So there was a whimsicalness to his approach to things and and, an absolute confidence in any fight that he was in, that he would ever be in any kind of danger. He was never concerned about that, that character. Yeah, I like the idea of him being more of a panther as opposed to a fox. And that kind of leads me to my next question, because the part of Zorro has been played by many, many famous leading men throughout Hollywood. We're talking right. about Tyrone Powell, Douglas Fairbanks, uh, more contemporary to around that time period. He would have had Antonio Banderas, I think actually a few yes. years after yours. Uh, Alain Delon played Zorro briefly in a movie in, uh, I think it was in Spain, actually. Um, so what did you do? You know, and you kind of talked about it right here, but what did you do to make Zorro and also the alter ego of the character, uh, become yourself, become your own version and your own interpretation of the character. Yeah, it was, um, that was an interesting process too, you know, uh, because I started out wanting to make a bigger contrast between the Zorro character and the Don Diego character. I, I really wanted them to be have a big division between the two um, because it seemed to make more sense to me. The producers didn't want that, though. I tried very hard to say, well, you know, why don't we do the Don Diego character kind of like a Ben Franklin type with the pince-nez glasses and the, you know, the stoop and the, the long hair. He could have blonde hair instead of black hair, and um, you know. And then uh, he just sticks on a mustache and the mask, and he goes out and does the hero work that way. And they said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. There has to be kind of a, an essence of, Don Diego in the Zorro character and vice versa. So that balance I had to kind of achieve and set aside my own artistic interpretation of the character. Otherwise, I'd get fired. As we mentioned, you worked with Henry Darrow. He was, in fact, uh, the first Latin American person to ever play Zorro uh, in yeah. television and uh, yeah. a veteran actor. Uh, what did you learn from working with him? Lightning in a bottle. He's great fun. Just, just wonderful, wonderful humor and chutzpah in that guy. He's just great. He could turn it on, you know, and even when he was really, really tired, Henry would always come with the goods. Lots of, lots, good chops. That's Henry. Great chops, as we say in the theater. <laughs> so one other thing I wanted to talk about before we do jump into Star Trek, and I think that's where I probably first ever saw you, and that's in Monster Squad. And I know you still get recognized all over the place for being a Monster Squad. We just talked about it with Christopher Lee as well uh, and some of the horror stuff there. Um, but yeah, I heard on Monster Squad, you actually stayed in character as Dracula during the entire filming, even offset. Is that true? Well, I think more of what it was was that I separated myself from the kids. Okay. You know, and we, we you know, I sat down and talked about it with the producers and the, from the director, Fred Decker and, and Peter Hyams. And, and it was sort of a, an interesting approach to take. Because as the little kids were totally into it. They believed in everything they were doing. They were running around all over the place. And they were these, you know, these fearsome monster people around all over the place. And it just seemed to work better for them if you stayed kind of close to that character and avoided allowing them to see you as a normal person. One of the things that always sticks out to me about that film and about your, your character in particular is that Dracula's throwing sticks of dynamite. And that's just so crazy to me. Uh, so I just got to ask, like, when you got to that page of the script during your first reading, what did you think of that revelation? Well, uh, there were lots of things in that that, that I, I was trying to achieve uh, with that particular character. You know, I wanted to make him actually less of a sort of conventional monster. Uh, you know, I think the human, the human aspects of us, the darker human aspects of us, are far more frightening than, say, some kind of growling monster that you can deal with. But he was psychological. He was a sociopath. He had a you know a goal in mind, and nothing was going to get in his way. And he was absolutely vicious. But 
he had a sense of humor. He had to be, you know, back then we'd, we'd call it camp. He was pretty camp as a, a character. And, and, and um, so throwing dynamite and, you know, saying meeting adjourned and stuff like that was, a, you know, a, a wonderful way to approach the thing, I felt. It's kind of perfect for a character like that. And I, I love when you in particular play those types of roles. Like, uh, I think it was Wizards and Warlocks is the show also. I'm trying to remember that. Wizards that's and Warriors, yeah. Wizards and Warriors, yeah. Um, same, same kind thing. of same sort of thing the bad guy you know with the, the all the leather and everything and you know just you know always had a kind of a tongue in cheek about everything i mean are you attracted to those kinds of roles do you like those roles where the character is very inflated and larger than life in that kind of way i do actually i like the iconic sort of roles and i played played quite a few of them um but it's not always of that ilk i at one point i was thinking is there a character i'm going to play here in hollywood that isn't wearing black you know, because the list was just growing. Um, but I, I, you know, there are other iconic characters that I played. Hey, Abraham Lincoln, for example, for for on stage is was, you know, fantastic opportunity, and um, you know, so that I I am attracted to those larger than life roles. It seems even Ronan, if you look at Ronan in the Next Generation as the uh, what do they call him, the Sex Candle Ghost or something. Um, yeah, that kind of character. It's still kind of iconic, uh, very, very, very much that way. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel, Illyria. And the first book is called The Trail of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel, is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. The adventure is a trilogy, and the first book goes on sale November 5th, which happens to be my birthday. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes, or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, 
www.jumpmanfield.com or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So why don't you check it out and judge for yourself? Or better yet, give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. <laughs> Disclaimer, no Latinum accepted. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, well, Duncan, since you brought up the sex candle ghost, we got to start talking about Star Trek. Uh, I think it's only appropriate now. Uh, so as we mentioned, you first appeared in Season 7 of Star Trek The Next Generation, the episode Sub Rosa. You were Ronin, uh, also known as Casper the Gropey Ghost and the Sex Candle Ghost. Uh, oh, okay. That's, that's the name I'm giving you now is, yeah, Casper the Gropey Ghost. I'm going with that one. Uh, okay. So can you tell us a little bit about the audition process for this role? And uh, did you know you're going to be giving Beverly Crusher some phantom orgasms here? Uh, yeah, when I read the script, she was so lovely, a wonderful, wonderful actress, such a smart woman and, uh, makes wonderful choices. She's, she was just great. Um, uh, no, I had no idea uh, that I would be groping Beverly Crusher, as you say. <laughs> Yeah, the interesting thing I find about the show also is that we're talking about Star Trek. This is a show that takes place in the future. But this episode in particular, it's much more like a period piece. Right. And, exactly. and I find that pretty interesting. And, so, and the way this episode is approached, it's very much like a classic 1930s universal horror picture in a lot of ways, too. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, was that, again, another thing that would have attracted you to this role? Was that something that was even discussed when you were doing the auditions for it? Or was it just something that, you know, it was a thing and you did what you had to do? Well, he was supposed to be, you know, descended from uh, Scottish royalty in some way, which at that time, the time, you know, the fictitious time that it was set in, uh, he would have been an Englishman. So there was no Scottish accent applied on top of that. It was he would be an Englishman. So and that's basically how I played him. Um, but there were other things that, uh, you know, the script sort of arrived in bits and pieces, too. It wasn't complete you know, immediately, um, as I recall. Do you remember much about the audition for this role? Not really. Not really. I remember uh, waiting to go in to talk to them the first time and and who should show up but Michael Tylo, who had just, you know, I just worked with in Zorro. Uh, he used to play the Alcalde and uh, he, he showed up as well. So it's kind of nice. That's all I remember about it. I mean, I, I just went in and did my thing, whatever it was. And, and the next thing I know, they say, well, they want you to do the role. I kind of thought they did before I went in, actually, to, to be honest. As we mentioned, and as anyone who's seen the episode knows, you spend most of your time on screen with Gates McFadden as Beverly Crusher. Right. Uh, so, you know, he already said some nice things about her. But what else do you remember about acting with her? And uh, especially in this case, in this episode, her character is acting very much out of character. Right. Um, well, most of the stuff was fairly romantic and, you know, it's the stuff of, you know, bodice rippers and that kind of thing. So it was it was lovely. And she kind of understood that. It's, it's an, an interesting thing when you meet people who are very familiar with the theater as she is. And uh, there's a, it's sort of an instant acceptance and camaraderie that exists, like a bonding where we're of the same creed or whatever. And uh, so that was there for sure from the very, very get-go. Um, likewise with Patrick, you know. You can... Was there any inspiration from other famous characters in movies or anything else that you pulled from to play the sex candle ghost? I'm just going to keep calling him sex candle ghost. I can't call him Ronan. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was called that for the for the longest time. And then somebody else pointed it out to me. And uh, But I think it's a great title. Um, 
fairly and, accurate uh, too. Fairly accurate, and I and I think uh, I, I love the notion that the episode is both you know kind of affectionately lauded and and critically derided in a way as well. It's it gives it an air of notoriety, but um, yeah, uh, I didn't base it on anything in particular. Just sort of went with what the script is and had an understanding of a sort of a Byronesque type of character, which is more about poetry than an actual character. Uh, that was where I came from with it, I think. When you put it that perspective, it does kind of make sense because he is, you know, he is a classical bad guy character, but right. he's also very lyrical. And there is something yeah. kind of magnetic and charismatic about the character. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you guys are filming the scenes where your ghost essence is doing your thing to Beverly Crusher, uh, do you remember any off-camera reaction to Gates having her various reactions, let's just say? <laughs> I do remember one instance uh, where she was kind of writhing around the bed, writhing around on the bed, having all these feelings, and and suddenly she she got into this very peculiar position where her rear end was right into the camera lens. <laughs> I think it was Jonathan Frakes who said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, uh, no, you don't want it, Gates. No, maybe not that way. Maybe not that way. Roll the other way. We just mentioned Jonathan Frakes. Of course, he was the director for this episode. Uh, what right. do you recall about his directing style? Well, he's he's got a wonderful sense of humor. He's a, he's a great guy. We were neighbors at the time. And... Uh, He's just—he's a, a wonderful, and, and he has a, an incredibly optimistic approach to what he's doing. He's actually, a, you know, an actor's dream as a director. He's really wonderful, and has a great understanding because he is himself an actor. So I think actors love Jonathan Frakes. And since we did mention that you are kind of already aware of the fan reaction, I mean, are you? surprised that it's had this much of a reaction this many years later it's still talked about uh you know i'm in all sorts of star trek groups on facebook really? and at least once a week if not more i'm seeing somebody bring up sub rosa it just comes up and uh <laughs> they even joked about it in the star trek lower deck show recently wonderful i had no idea that's yeah. great yeah <laughs> do you get that reaction from a lot of fans do you go to conventions that when they realize you're the sex candle ghost uh yeah there, there are people who come to conventions that are specifically there for that reason um, just to, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they have a list of other things, but when they approach me, their reason is to, is because of Ronan or because of, yes, Ronan, that's his name or the sex candle ghost. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Duncan's appearance in TNG in the episode Beverly Crusher and the Phantom Orgasm. But after that, he returned for Deep Space Nine and this time with a much yeah. uh, meteor role as Shakar. Right. Uh, so you came in the episode actually called Shakar, you returned again in season four for Crossfire and then season five in The Begotten. So Let's start off first with the character of Shikar here. Did you know from the onset that this would have the potential to be returning again and again as a recurring character? Uh, it's always talked about, you know, the, as they are, these these kind types of characters, they're always saying, you know, well, there could be a recurring role, so why don't you come on in and do this? And then, you know, it either turns out or it doesn't, you know, and in this case it did. They, You know, what they were saying was, did evolve. And um, so, yeah, I guess I sort of knew, sort of suspected that it would happen. Um, yeah. Uh, do you recall if you had to audition for this part or do they say, Hey, let's bring back that sex scandal ghost guy for this episode. I, I don't think I auditioned for it. I'm pretty sure I didn't. Yeah, I think they just offered it. So the, I've read that this role was meant to be very much like, uh, Emiliano Zapata. I've heard Robert yeah. Wolf talk about that. Um, so when you were approached this character, when you started to research for it and figure out your voice for Shakar, uh, what did you do to try and create that character? 
again, he was very much a swashbuckling hero type, which I, you know, absolutely familiar with. And particularly at that time, I was playing so many of those types of roles. So I had a lot of things to draw upon to create that role. He wasn't Zorro because he was, you know, maybe a bit, you know, he didn't have the refined sort of approach to the the fighting skills and all of that, which was with the bailiwick of the Nana's character. They were, you know, the more martial arts type. He was more like John Wayne going in and slugging it out with people. Um, so he was, he was a rougher kind of rebel hero. So I just put some edges on him and uh, yeah. So it was a, it was a lot of fun to play that character. Um, I had less interest in it later on when they turned him into the prime minister because he, you know, I, I actually would have been content if I'd just done the one episode in many respects. I understood that character. When he transformed into the prime minister, it, he sort of lost an agenda there. He didn't, I didn't really know where he was going to go or what he was going to be. Um, and it, it didn't really speak to me anymore. I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually something I was wondering about. Having just rewatched the episodes, I felt that, you know, between the two characters you played in the Star Trek franchise, I felt in some ways hot take here that Ronin was actually a much meatier character, despite Shakar having three episodes, since Ronin really has a full episode that is about himself, whereas Shakar right. gets the episode called Shakar. But then the two follow ups that we see when Crossfire. Uh, you're basically the B plot and you're more there as a vehicle for the character Odo trying to search yeah. for his humanity. And similarly right. in the begotten, again, that episode is an all Odo episode. You're brought in as comic relief. So I mean, do you have any thoughts about that too? I mean, wh which role do you feel is yeah, actually it, more substantial role was, for you? To me, to me, it was kind of baffling because I thought, well, these are different characters. You know, if you, the character I was interested in was the character in Shakar. That's that's what I was brought. Yeah, that would have worked for me. I understood that character. He had an agenda. Uh, he was focused and he was full of vitality and strong, selfless man of action kind of thing. And then, uh, but the other character I I didn't get is the uh, the prime minister. His destiny became very vague to me. Um, and as you say, they popped him around all over the place, which eventually just didn't work for me it wasn't a, a good fit for me i felt anyway no, i think as a fan i can say that i i honestly did think that the ronin performance was definitely a stronger role in just that one episode as opposed to how it was in these three episodes because it really did feel like shikar got neutered essentially as we went along yeah, he exactly. lost a lot of power. that's a good way of putting it that's a good way of putting it and and uh it's just not something that would work for me i you know and, and in terms of you know as you say a b plot i think it was actually a felt more like a C or a D plot, you know, after a while. And, and it's not the sort of thing that as an artist, I will spend my time on, to be perfectly honest. I just, I, there's other things that I want to do and, and to carry on. Um, but that said, you know, it was wonderful to work with the people. I loved Nana Visitor. She was really, she's a beautiful woman and, and easy to fall in love with and you know, they were they were just wonderful people. And Rene Aubergenois was was such a, a wonderful raconteur. I'd love to sit with Rene and, and hear his stories and, and his viewpoints on things. Uh, he was such a wonderful, intelligent actor. I've heard great things about both of them. I'm, I'm never going to unfortunately be able to ever meet Rene, sadly. But, uh, you yeah. know, in this episode, you do get to spend a lot of time, of course, with the Nod oh, Visitor. I worked, worked with Rene previously on um, Billy the Kid. Gore oh, Vidal's okay. Billy the Kid. Yeah, he played the drunk. And it's wonderfully <laughs> beautiful drunk. <laughs> Do you have any stories you can share with us about Renee? 
Uh, just that we used to, there was nothing active that actually happened. I would just, you know, I was fascinated with his viewpoints on things. I love people who have ideas. I love to listen to ideas all the time. And and he certainly had them. And, uh, you know, political or otherwise, he would come up with, you know, lots of different viewpoints. And I enjoyed that aspect of it. You know, likewise with Nanash, he took an interest in my art. And uh, we did a little bit of socializing, not too much. But, uh, you know, I think she came to one of my my exhibits in uh, Santa Monica. Yeah. So what's it like sharing the screen with Nana? I've, I've heard from pretty much everybody. She's an excellent scene partner, but uh, how would you describe working with her? Well, she's, she's got these eyes that are just, you know, you fall into they're like these brown pools, beautiful, you know, so, <laughs> but she's also got a wonderful sense of humor. You know, you just feel very, very comfortable with her. And she goes out of her way to make, you know, people comfortable. I saw her doing it with others. And, uh, you know, she's really a very special actor. I feel like anytime I've seen her in anything, especially, of course, Deep Space Nine, she just has this instant connection with anybody that she's working with. And it feels real in the scene. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. So the episode Shakar that we've been talking about as well, um, that was mostly filmed in Bronson Canyon. And I heard that in particular, the days you guys were shooting there, it was extremely cold. Uh, do you recall anything about the first episode you appeared in it and all the outdoor scenes you guys filmed? Yes. I remember trying to get warm by drinking coffee. What I thought was coffee. Um, you know, and I, I love coffee. I'm, you know, I've just come back from Spain and, you know, drinking all this wonderful stuff, uh, probably too much. But they had the, you know, the coffee urns out there in the first thing in the morning. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go and fill up on this stuff and, you know, there's two or two different urns, one for decaf and one for caffeinated coffee. So I'm pouring in, you know, drinking this stuff all morning. And before we actually got to my first scene with Nana, I had the worst headache I've ever had in my life. I couldn't understand what was why, why I had this headache. I found out later that they'd made a mistake with the coffee. They put the decaf in the caffeinated urn. And they, so, you know, the little orange tab on the thing. Yeah, I wasn't getting the real goods that I was used to every morning. So I ended up with a, you know, a, a coffee sort of headache. And that's what I remember about it, trying to get through these scenes with uh, Nana, who was quite wonderful. But I, I could barely move. I was so blasted with a headache. And especially for the episode where you're running around up and down canyons and hills and all, yeah. all sorts of things. That sounds like dying. a rough day. Absolutely dying. <laughs> so since you're one of the actors who has been on TNG and Deep Space Nine, how would you describe differences between these sets? And I don't mean the actual physical locations, but the feeling on set. Oh, um, I, I guess they, they're not that much different from each other, I don't think. I mean, I, I didn't have enough experience on uh, Next Generation to know. I, it was. It was all interior and um, the deep space nine, you know, there was some exterior that I was involved in. There's that difference. Um, but yeah, I, I, I didn't really notice too much difference. I wasn't concerned about those sort of things anyway, really. So in your last uh, DS9 appearance, most of the episode was spent with Nana Visitor, but you also have spent some time with Colmini and Rosalind Chow. Uh, can you recall anything with them? Because that was basically, a, as we mentioned before, kind of a scene that was meant for laughs. It was you uh, at the day that Kira is giving birth, uh, and you're all trying to keep yourselves quiet. But meanwhile, you and O'Brien, Colmini, are just arguing back and forth the whole time. <laughs> uh, do you recall much about working with Colm? 
And Rosalind, I should say. <laughs> Coleman Rosalind. Well, they're both wonderful actors. What can I say? And she is, uh, she's just a, was such a gentle kind of giving person. And, and Colm is, is absolutely dynamic. You know, he's all over the place. You know, he's been, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I think he's very, very sharp when I say being all over the place. He's nothing, miss, he doesn't miss a thing. Um, and uh, yeah, it made for a kind of a, a difference of the two individuals. She was very, very gentle and almost Zen-like to me um, in her approach to things. She was just lovely. Yeah. As we mentioned, The Begotten is the final appearance of Shikar, uh, and the breakup between Kira and Shikar happens off camera. It's talked about basically in passing in an episode. Uh, oh, yeah. But was there ever any mention of bringing you back to do the breakup on screen? I don't think so. I think I'd moved on. I was involved in something else, another film. Um, I mean, I, I've heard about this, but I didn't know anything about it at the time. I, you know, I just had sort of moved on. Now, when any of these episodes that you did in Star Trek first aired, or since then, I should say, too, have you ever watched them back? Have I ever watched them again? Yes. Uh, yeah, I've seen the the uh, Shakar. I uh, don't think I've seen the Deep Space Nine stuff. Maybe, maybe, oh, I mean Shakar. Yes, I've seen the Shakar episode and I've seen Ronan, but I think that's about it. Yeah, the rest, I'm trying to remember the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Are you the kind of actor that likes to watch your, press, but your past performances or do you prefer to stay away from it and move on? I just kind of move on. Is really me. I mean, I'll go and look at rushes and things like that if I'm asked. And um, I mean, I don't know what people do now about that sort of thing. But if somebody wants me to see something or, or to work on something, and I'll go and look at it, of course. You know, uh, but I don't spend a lot of time looking at myself on the screen. I don't think I've seen. I haven't even seen half of the Zaros that I did. Not even half. Maybe maybe not even a quarter of them. Very few. Were you ever called back to audition for any other roles in Star Trek, or did you have the desire to ever come back in the other franchises? I don't think so. I mean, prior to those two roles, I think I'd been asked, but wasn't available. Um, yeah, I, I think. It's a long time ago. So one other thing I want to discuss here today uh, from your acting career is, uh, this is another oddity for you, Air Bud 3. I have to ask you about that today. I can't let you walk out of here without discussing Air Bud 3. What do you recall from that film? Because I, I don't even know where to begin with Air Bud 3. <laughs> um, it's about a dog, right? That's not, yep, that's not with the dog. Who, uh, <laughs> I remember the puppies. I yep. remember a lot of puppies, which were delightful. Um, and a character that was completely bizarre and, you know, sort of a nerdy father type I was playing. And he gets locked in a closet. He's totally hopeless. And uh, it, was, it was fun to do, you know, a bit of a contrast. But yeah, it was it was just a lark, fun to do. Shot it in Vancouver. Must be nice, the easy easy commute. Easy commute for me. Yeah. <laughs> so let's jump ahead now, and I'd like to spend a little bit of time discussing your literary and your art career because you know typically we talk about a lot of acting that kind of stuff on this show, but uh, you are truly a Renaissance man of the arts, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your your art, what you do. Uh, you've got several books that you've published now, and you've got one I think coming out as well. Um, so let's just start first things first. Talk to us a little bit about, um, if you can, to our viewers, describe what you would call your art. Now, it's, I know it's a very big, broad question, but you know I, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos and trying to get my head around it as well, and looking at the various you know, evolutions of your artwork from the 90s to, I guess, now, whatever I can find. Uh, there's definitely, I feel like, a lot of changes, a lot of evolution, a lot of growth. Um, but these days, how would you describe it to someone who's looking at it for the very first time? Um, well, it's it's... 
I would say I've moved through a great many different series of works, um, you know, even changing styles, uh, which, you know, drives my dealers crazy, but uh, because they like to latch on to something that they can market and have a, have a common theme to it and everything. And that, that kind of locks me into it. It's like saying, you know, you've got to play this role for the rest of your life. Um, and I'm more interested in finding some versatility with that and exploring different themes and philosophies. And, and that's how, what, what comes through, I think, in, in my work. It's always a study of the human condition. Most of my work is figurative, whether it's sculpture or painting or drawing or, or whatever. But moving through various series, uh, I mean, in the last five decades, we actually sat down at the gallery and and tried to figure out how many different series of paintings, not how many paintings, I can't count that, that's thousands, but but certainly different series of works. Uh, in the last five decades, 48, 48 different series. So they're very, very different from each other, almost as though they were done by different artists at times, I think. You know, I've been told that anyway. That's always a good thing for the artist because that shows your personal growth, your evolving thought in the process. And, uh, you know, just again, from being the outsider looking at the work you've done, uh, I can see that the process has very much changed for you. You know, as we mentioned, you've done a lot of figures. There's also been landscapes or geoscapes, as you call them as well. Uh, and they're all very much meant to be evocative of the subconscious. So uh, what is it that attracts quite often, you? Quite often, yeah. yeah. What, what would you say attracts you to that particular thought of the subconscious and trying to express it on a canvas? Um, well, I think, you know, it's, I, it's not the only place that I go to, but uh, it is... Um, it is uh, very much about human beings. So, you know, the subconscious is quite often where where the, uh, I'm not, I, mean, I hesitate to say the truth comes out, but certainly what is sometimes hidden and can be exposed about us can come out. But, you know, I painted other things that are much more related to our, our social environment and um, po- politics even at times, uh, religion. Um, and it's just moving through various phases of these things and, and working with them. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. Um, and it, and it manifests in poetry as well. I, I don't really write poetry or, or write, uh, prose that is directly related to a specific piece, but you can find relationships between the written work and the visual work but they're not for each other in any way. In other, in other words, the poetry isn't a description of a painting and the painting is not, you know, a visual of what's written there. I watched a few interviews that you've done discussing your artwork on YouTube that I've found. And uh, you've, you've talked a lot about the process of how you gesso your canvas, how you basically prepare your canvas to be painted on. It's a very meticulous process. And I find that a lot of your work that I've looked at, it is very, very much meticulous is a good word I like to use for it because there's a lot going on. They're very complex pieces. But on the same token, you're also working with the subconscious, and that's a very <clears throat> that's a very immediate kind of thought. So I find that to be an, an interesting contrast to go from basically something that's meant to be so immediate to an artistic process that is very uh, I don't want to say long or drawn out because that's not what I mean to say, but something that's got a lot of a lot of prep work into it and a lot of thought behind it. It's uh, just an observation I had. I don't know if you have any comments about that. Well, it is a it is one way of working that I've employed over the years. I mean, you know. I'd, I don't have a set way of preparing anymore, um, but there was certainly a time when I, I employed a lot more of what we call automatism, which is, you know, grew out of the surrealist movement. Um, 
and and it's very very valuable you can use it in writing or you can use it in painting that the idea being that the imagery that comes forth is what you intended anyway even though it sort of happens in spite of yourself um it it comes out yeah so the, the, you know it's almost like the the application and the the taking away of paint is unveiling what imagery is in your subconscious but it's only one way of working. It's not the only way that I work. Yeah, because you've got so many things. It's hard to even really pinpoint yeah. one one little thing about the artwork. That is especially. one way that I worked. And I think I described it in the book, The Dragon's Eye, which was written about 30 years ago. Well, not quite 30 years ago. Um, but I, and that's probably what you're referring to is that that process. Yeah. And so for anybody who would like to learn more about Duncan's artwork, his literary pursuits, uh, where can our listeners and our audience today check that out? They could go to a couple of different places. Um, DuncanRegareArtworks.com. Um, or they could go to uh, my gallery, Pet- Petley Jones Gallery in Vancouver. Um, and uh, the other place would be just DuncanRegare.com. We'll get you to a space where you can look at books and, and poetry and paintings and artwork. So if you don't mind now, I'd like to do a little bit of a, I, I don't want to call it a psychoanalysis, but just an observation I had about uh, your skill set and how it's translated through various arts and what I think might be a mindset related to it and to an approach. Uh, because as I've watched a lot of your performances in the various roles you've had, and I've watched several of your interviews you've done throughout the years, uh, I've, I've felt like what I've gleaned is that you're a man who doesn't like to be complacent. And we talked about that with your art style changing and all that kind of thing. Um, you're a person that really very much likes to be challenged and not just challenging yourself, but be challenged by others. And you like to then also put that challenge onto the viewer. Uh, and in fact, there's one piece in particular that I like to think of, uh, which I don't remember the name, but you'll have to help me out with it. Uh, it was a piece from a few years ago where you had the uh, heads that were on podiums and there was a little gong and you were supposed to like go around and, and hit yeah, those. Yeah, and I yeah, felt like yeah. it's literally, you're challenging the viewer to do that, to take action and do this thing. And you're basically seeing, you know, are they going to do it? <laughs> is there that sort of artistic machismo to go ahead and do that? But, um, you know, basically, is that something that you, that you feel about yourself, about your work is that you like to be challenged and you like to also challenge other people and make them rise up to where your level is? Um, it, yeah, I think it just, it's yeah, probably part of my nature. It's not something that I, if I'm challenging people, I, I, I guess it's, it's, it becomes challenging because look with art it's it's always about what the viewer gets from the work it doesn't matter what my intent behind the work is it's how it's viewed and when people you know talk about it afterwards they always ask me questions like what were you thinking when you painted this and i turn it back on them and say well what do you think i was thinking you know because that it's your reaction that will tell the truth and Quite often, I find that tells me more about the viewer than anything else, simply by the question they ask about the piece, the particular piece that they're looking at, um, and if they're challenged by it. Um, and we're talking specifically about the theme of the piece. I mean, I get a lot of questions like, oh, where'd you get the frame? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing, which is kind of not, you know, in a store. <laughs> But if they ask questions, you know, questions that puzzle them or, you know, that it's it's I find that interesting. Or if they have an idea about what that painting means to them, what it evokes in them, that's what's interesting. We've had a lot of actors on the show who talk about the art of acting being the way to get to the truth 
And the truth doesn't necessarily always mean the actor's truth. It also means, as you said, what the audience perceives that truth to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would hope that that it goes beyond any intent that I would have in it, that they would have something else out of it. I love all the interpretations are great with me. Good or bad, doesn't matter. So as a veteran of the stage and screen for so many years, so many roles, what is the one thing you wish you knew on day one that you know today that you would have loved to have told yourself back when you first began? Oh, wow. (laughs) I think, you know, making that, trying to make that separation at the end of the day, that it is, it is just make-believe and, you know, in terms of acting and, you know, too often we get involved with uh, the other people that are in in, in it as well. And in my case, you know, romantically getting involved with ladies and what have you and, you know, disastrous relationships, et cetera. Um, because that would be the only message. And I see it again and again where, where people get involved in a film or they're in a television series or whatever, and they marry the person that, that they're with in the show. And then, of course, after the show is over, life is very different. And you're not those people at all. So I would, I, that's my recommendation to others is to, you know, really keep an eye on that. But love is love, right? You fall in love and, you know, your brain goes dead. <laughs> so what can you tell our audience about what Duncan Regeer is doing these days? We talked about your art and your gallery, but uh, what else are you working on right now? Uh, well, I'm writing a new book. Um as well as you know, keeping working on the material that, that that I'm doing for the show as well. It's 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 just a show of the the pieces that I'm doing. It's not the completion of the series by any means. And I'm I'm working on a thing uh, called the Lost Man and the Forgotten Woman right now. These images. <clears throat> so I'm continuing on with that. There's more to do with that. It goes beyond the this particular exhibition that I've got. And last question for the day, Duncan. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Well, the, I think that it it goes on. I mean, it's it it deals with infinity, and like infinity, Star Trek keeps keeps going on and on, and it and it changes as all things do within the universe, um, and and it evolves and transforms, and there's always something new to reach for, and I think. We are creators. We are searchers. We are explorers as human beings. That's the, you know, the common thread throughout all of us. I think, you know, a lot of us are are just going to stay kind of brain dead. But, you know, most people, I think, would prefer to be creators and explore new frontiers. And and that's what is wonderful about Star Trek. Um, you know, I say I don't have a familiarity with it in terms of watching episode after episode after episode, but the basic tenet of the, these various series is always about that. It's about reaching for the unknown, uncovering truth. And that's what's special about Star Trek, to me anyway. So, Duncan, thank you so much today for sharing all your stories from Star Trek, from all the other things that you've worked on, and telling us also a little bit about your art career and your literary pursuits as well. And folks, do make sure you check out all those links that Duncan mentioned. We're going to have those below in the show notes, so you can make sure you click on over to those, check out his books, check out all of his work if you haven't before. Some very fascinating stuff. I think you all enjoy it. Uh, Duncan, thank you so much again for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you, too, Matthew. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. That was our chat with Duncan Regeer, an artist extraordinaire in every sense of the word. 
If you want to see some of Duncan's art or check out any of his books, there's going to be some links in the show notes, so do make sure you take a peek there if you're interested. The character of Shakar had three appearances in Deep Space Nine, but the writers tried to have him show up a few more times, and there were some unused bits for some of the episodes he was in. In an earlier draft of Crossfire, a fireball would be hurtling down towards Shakar and Kira, and Odo would have to choose who to save. Ultimately, he chose to protect Shakar for the sake of duty, despite the fireball nearly killing Kira. Duncan was also planned to appear in the episode Body Parts, to have an intimate conversation with Kira about her having Keiko O'Brien's baby. And he was also part of an unused DS9 script called Patriots, where Jake Sisko discovers a political scandal involving Shikar that would have shook the Bajoran government to its core. Now, while that episode didn't make it to air, it was in fact rewritten into the now famous In the Pale Moonlight episode. Now, as for the fate of Shikar after Deep Space Nine, well, if you follow the books at all, and big, big spoiler alert here, Shikar was in the DS9 relaunch novels and was, well, promptly assassinated during the ceremony for Bajor's entry into the Federation. But it was probably a good thing because, as it turns out, Shikar was in fact under the control of some little parasites that you may remember from the TNG Season 1 finale, Conspiracy. Yeah, those little guys did come back, and we could do a whole show about them one day, but that's a whole other episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast when available, make sure to check out youtube.com slash nerdnews today. And don't forget, you can also check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. Check out all the Trek Untold merchandise we have, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash trekuntold. Any contribution you can make helps keep this ship running at optimum power. But even just listening to the show and telling your friends about it does a pretty big thing for us, too. So please leave a rating and review if you're listening to this on the audio form, or give the video on YouTube a thumbs up and sub to the channel. There's no wrong way to help Trek Untold out, so whether you're just dropping a review, giving us ratings, or if you're able to offer us any support monetarily, we thank you so much for doing that, and we also thank you for again choosing to listen to Trek Untold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked as a guest on this show, or provide a sponsorship opportunity to Trek Untold, please email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you thought about this week's episode and our guest. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And until next time, fortune favors the bold.